Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Kevin Locke, but he also goes by another name, Tokahaya Inajin, which in the Lakota language means first to rise. Kevin Locke is a musician, dancer, teacher, and a cultural ambassador of Lakota Native American traditions, like the hoop dance and the indigenous Northern Plains flute. He's been instrumental in the revival of the indigenous flute tradition, which teetered on the brink of extinction. But he's kept the tradition alive thanks to tireless dedication and a National Heritage Fellowship he received from the National Endowment for the Arts. For 40 years, he's been playing, singing, dancing, and telling stories to hundreds of thousands of people in almost 100 countries, in performing arts centers, at festivals, universities, in state and national parks. But most of Kevin Locke's presentations happen through the educational system, and they're shared with children around the world. His goal is to empower today's youth and to raise awareness of the oneness we share as human beings. And he's also passionate about working with children who live on Native American reservations to ensure the survival and growth of indigenous culture. Kevin Locke is no stranger to South Central Indiana. He's performed at the Lotus Festival, and he was recently in town as a guest of the Baha'i community of Bloomington. While he was here, he joined Shane Lauder in the WFIU studios. Kevin, welcome to Profiles. Ah, thanks so much. So can you tell us first about your heritage and your beginnings with the Lakota and the Anishinaabe people? Okay, I'd be glad to say something. I was reading this book called Teton Sioux Music. It accompanies uh, recordings that were done almost 110 years ago from my community at Standing Rock. One of the uh, informants says, uh, Did you get that? Got it perfectly. Got it. He introduced himself and he said, uh, I'm just a person that has a place, has a position somewhere between heaven and earth. And I'm a person that sprang up from this earth. I account myself as a human being. So I really loved that introduction, and I've been using it ever since. His name was Itunka Saluta, a red weasel, this informant. He was born, I think, sometime in the early 1800s. And that's how he thinks of himself. And I, gosh, I love that, you know. In other words, we're just a mem- I'm just a member of the human being tribe. But just like everybody else, we do have some kind of ethnicity. We have some kind of a culture and language. We've been socialized certain ways. So I really treasure that, too. I treasure the all the interactions that I've received, my cultural linguistic background. I was so blessed to be able to uh, be around so many people. I would say a lot of monolingual people who only spoke Lakota language. And so that was a great influence on me and, you know, the things that I carry with me up to today. Did you grow up on the Standing Rock Reservation? Well, I'm still a work in progress. I'm still growing up I lived a lot of different places, but I've lived there most longest, I'd say longest. Where did you receive your education? I started school at uh, Lewis and Clark Elementary School in Great Falls, Montana. Graduated high school in the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. 
And I did a little traveling around in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You went to college in North Dakota? I started, then it was called Black Hill State College. Now it's Black Hill State University in Spearfish, South Dakota. And then I went down to a Haskell. Then it was called Haskell Indian Junior College. Now it's Haskell Indian Nations University. Then I was just doing farm work. I was bucking bales that subsequent summer. And my buddy said, hey, he said, uh, you have two years of college. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, he said, uh, well, I'm applying for this elementary education degree through the University of North Dakota. It's called Teacher Corps, which was one of the great society programs, you know, under the, well, Kennedy and then Johnson kind of developed it a little further. The whole idea was to train teachers for not just inner city urban areas, but also uh, underserved rural areas as well. And so they had a really successful program going up at University of North Dakota Grand Forks. So I applied and was accepted with that. We did coursework on the campus in Grand Forks, but then we were basically did everything through modules, through distance learning, right at our home community. So I was actually just right there at the, I was an employee, 48 school district number four there in uh, Sioux County. Well, it's actually on the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota. Then I graduated from that. I taught for a couple of years, and also I got an educational administration degree through University of South Dakota. And after that, I became a professional student for a while, too. When did you encounter the flute and the dances and knew that you had to take them on as... Uh, well, you know, the fir- I think I was just thinking about that. The first time I really heard flute music was uh, my mom had these old vinyl discs. And there was uh, one that she had. It was from the Library of Congress. It was a big disc, but it was uh, like a 76 RPM. This one was a recording that was done through the Library of Congress in the 1930s. And on that recording, there was a gentleman from South Dakota playing the flute. He would play the flute and he would sing the songs because all the flute songs are based on a vocal composition. And then I also remember hearing people play the flute at different gatherings. You know, there'd be a powwow going on. And you see, by the 60s, the flute was way out. It was really uh, an anachronism at that time. That was something that was really specific to the pre-reservation and very, very early reservation days. The practitioners of that were basically people born in the 1800s, 19th century people. So I do remember like at some powwows, the powwow committee would ask maybe some elder in that community to maybe during supper break, you know, when they take a break between like five and seven, they'd come up and they'd play some songs. I remember hearing that. But the time that I really got more uh, familiarized or more connected was in uh, 1972. I was uh, going to school at Spearfish. We went down to the University of South Dakota in Vermilion, and they had a big seminar going on. And here I saw one of my heroes, one of my the gentleman I always looked up to, his name was Richard Foolbull. He was from uh, St. Francis on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. He was born in the 1870s. Sometime, he didn't have a birth certificate. He was just born out on the prairie somewhere. 1870s, he was something like, they figured, 100, 100, 203. But he was very vigorous, very robust guy. They asked him to do a, a seminar on his flute music. He got that from his grandfather, I went to the seminar. I was sitting way in the back, and so he was talking about it. He played some songs. He described how he makes his flutes, why he decorates them as he does, all that. Very interesting. He's such a warm, personable individual. The session was over, and everybody was left. And I thought, well, since uh, you know I was there, I wanted to go see his work. He's such an artist with his craftsmanship, the way he would make them. So I went up close and I was looking at his work and then uh, I just thought, well, I just strike up a conversation. I'm kind of always been an introvert. 
I told him how much I admired what he did. And then I just asked him, I said, well, uh, who is carrying this tradition on? Who's taking it forward? And then he says, well, nobody. I says, well, what about maybe your grandkids or your children or great-grandchildren? He said, no, no. He says, nobody's interested in this. And then I said, oh, that's too bad. I said, I think it would be wonderful if somebody could take this on and take it forward, you know. And then he just stopped what he was doing. He was putting stuff away and just stopped. Whatever he had in his hand, I think he had a flute in his hand. He just put it down on the table there and just stopped. And he looked at me real hard, really looked at me. He says, you're right. You should do this. (laughs) That's what he said. (laughs) But he was so serious when he said that. I just didn't know. It just took me off guard, you know. He says, you're right. You're the one. You should do this. And then uh, I didn't say anything after that, you know. Then he just continued with what he was doing. And that was the last I saw him right there. And then I was over at my mom's place, oh, sometime after that. And then we heard that he had passed away. Well, he was really old, you know, over 100, few something. We don't know exactly, but he was over 100. And then uh, so we were just talking about about him. And then um, my mom, she paused, she says, wait. And she went out and then she came back in the room there and she had one of his flutes. She had one of his flutes, and then she just kind of handed it over to me, and I was trying to get a few little uh, sounds out of it. Then I just handed it back over to her. She says, no, no. She says, it's just collecting dust here. She said, you keep that. You keep it. I just thought, wow. I thought about, you know, that last conversation I had with him, with Richard Fulbull. I started to listen to that recording that my mom had. There was a couple of songs on there, and those are the first two songs that I learned. I don't know what happened, but... Some people heard that I could play something on the flute. So then I started getting invited to different places to do that. And as soon as I do that, older people would approach me, and they all had songs in that genre. Evidently, that was a very popular genre at one time, and then it just kind of died out. The reason why it was it was really specific to the cultural conditions. The way they lived back then is that young people would all, they would interact cross-gender freely with each other. There were restrictions, but then when they began to get close to puberty, then the young people were separated. The genders were separated, and they'd go through their gender-specific training to acquire subsistence skills. And so it's no joke. You know, we were just talking about the weather and things like that. So around Standing Rock and around that region, it can easily go down close to 40 below zero without wind chill. It doesn't stay that way, but it goes up and down. The climate is relatively unforgiving. It's abundant, but there's an aspect of it which is unforgiving. So it's no joke. You have to really know how to survive, how to thrive, all the skills you have to acquire. So this is what the young people would, uh, during their adolescence, I don't think it was informal. It was quite formal, the process of acquiring all these subsistence skills. And then once they had achieved proficiency in these skills and, you know, other things connected to that, proving the proficiency, then they're eligible for marriage, you see. There's a communication barrier there. And so this is where the flute arose as some kind of device or some kind of a way that people could further express or embellish the feelings that they have, not just romantic in a positive sense. A lot of the songs are people who are romantically challenged. It's got all aspects like the good, the bad, and the ugly. These songs, what they are is a literary tradition. It's a poetic style, the rules of composition, much akin to like haiku. There's formulaic rules of composition to construct the songs. So the first part of the song is comprised of like a very, it's very cryptic message, like haiku, you know, like the first opening line. You don't know what it's talking about. It's totally mysterious, very cryptic. It's very opaque. But then like the next line will 
disclose or shed light and illuminate, and then the cryptic aspect is illumined and becomes apparent. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, very much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so these are love songs. Yeah, yeah. So elders would come up to you as you're a young man, you're just starting to play the flute, and they would say, I know, here here are the songs I heard or I Yeah, they say, like, people would say, like, hey, I've got some songs for you. And typically I would ask them, and this is like in the 70s, you know, 70s and early 80s. And so these are people that were in their 80s. They would often explain how they, as young people, they would hear these songs, maybe from their parents or their grandparents. Even in the early reservation times, they were out of style. But it's such a treasured literary tradition. And they preserve idioms, expressions, vocabulary, much of it archaic, but very, very interesting, very intellectually stimulating use of the language. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is musician, dancer, and teacher Kevin Locke. He's speaking with Shane Lauder. To get into the language, which is in the music, and you're talking about the richness of it. Do you consider yourself a fluent native speaker? You say you grew up with people who were monolingual in Lakota. Do you consider yourself like a baseline native speaker of Lakota? Well, everybody does consider me that, but I don't consider myself that. <laughs> I don't I don't really I can uh, converse, I can uh, understand, I can talk back and forth. I have to really say that I'm anymore I'm English dominant now. They encourage people like me we're, we're kind of like called upon to mentor younger people. So I'm always happy to do that, you know, just to converse or talk. Or I raise my kids like that, too, you know, just speaking to them in Lakota language. Do you use the songs as examples of variations in the language? Yeah, you, they're really how rich. How express. Exactly, yeah, very much so. Even though they were anachronistic, even in the early reservation period, people would use them. Like, for instance, uh, this one... Uh, Elder was saying that when he was young, they used to go on these uh, cattle drives. And like from our place, you could go 200 miles east before you'd hit a fence. That's on the Minnesota border. So they go all the way out to Browns Valley, Minnesota to maybe cattle drive, bring livestock back. They could go all the way almost to Kansas south. Like that's over 300 miles. No fences. Real old people from when I was younger, they would go out with their uncles or whatever on these cattle drives. And those older people, day after day, that's what they would do. They didn't have iPods and stuff, you see. They would entertain themselves. They would sing these songs, you know, beautiful songs like that. And these are kind of like ballads. They're like ballads. So they're very stimulating, very intellectually stimulating kind of music. So that's how that came down the line. People do go on Internet and they type that in Native American flute, you know. Now, I wanted to mention that. The Native American flute should not be confused with the indigenous North American flute tradition. Native American flute was invented around 1985. So I wanted to, just before we left that topic. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you that, uh, yeah. that whether the abundance of recording, the advances in recording technology and the accessibility of music, the popularization of music, has changed Native American music. I don't consider that indigenous North American music. What people think of as a Native American flute, 
That was invented by a man named Michael Graham Allen. I think he's Scottish-American. Last I heard he was in Arizona. I don't know where he is now. But he was making traditional flutes, but then he found he couldn't market them. So then he made these. uh, It's in a minor pentatonic scale. It's called the melodic scale. A Navajo man named Carlos Nakai got a hold of one of those. He did recordings that went platinum. Just went everywhere. And pretty soon, they were all over. There were so many of these recordings. And everybody got interested in this Native American flute, which has zero relationship to traditional indigenous North American musical aesthetics. And is that uh, uh, related to the way it's tuned? Yeah, it's it's a tune, and it's just used for for improvisation. It's beautiful. I'm not saying anything bad about it. I'm just laying the facts out. Mm -hmm. So now people in their minds, they think that it's connected in some way to an indigenous North American musical tradition, but it's not. Just to clarify that. So what I play are the uh, original tuning system. Now, on a Native American flute, you can't really play even, it's not designed to play the music of North America. That's interesting. It inter- I think it's so yeah. interesting. When you say Native American flute, you're yeah. referring to this sort of popularized yeah. modern instrument, instrument. That, modern instrument that people are composing on. Yeah. People are bringing out new yeah. songs and new orchestrations, new arrangements. Yeah, but it's just their, it. it's their own improv. It's their own... Kind of like their own feeling, which is good. It's really good. And there's thousands of recordings on this. There's thousands of people making those kind of flutes. It's all over the Internet. But the, the original kind of flutes, you can't find those. Okay, so let's stick with the original flute. <laughs> yeah. You've got some in that pretty bag that you brought. Yeah. So would you like to play a bit? Yeah, I'll play one. I'll do one from over where I live. This is a song I'll do that's from uh, Peter Looking Horse. His dad was from Little Eagle. His mom was from Cannonball. He was like a human encyclopedia of knowledge, especially in music. And I remember, oh, years ago, he just he says, hey, he says, I've got some good songs for you. He said that when he was a little kid, you know, I suppose maybe in the, back in the teens or 20s, his dad and his uncles would get together, usually during the wintertime, you know, when they're all snowed in or something, and they would entertain themselves by going through all these different kind of songs. And so here's one of those one of his songs. Like I said, they're all based on a uh, vocal composition, but I'll I'll play a little bit first and I'll sing it for you so you can hear how it goes. Ay, 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 ay. 
So you can hear that the cryptic part of the composition is that it actually appears four times. Dokia amaya leso. Dokia amaya leso. So this is a woman talking here. Just by listening to this song, the text of it, this is a real popular girl, popular young lady. So, you know, all these different guys must be interested in her, asking her out for a date, something like this. And this one guy in particular, he asked her out for a date. So then she responds to him. She says, Dokia amaya leso. In other words, it's kind of like, okay, so now where do you think you're going with this? <laughs> Something like that. That would be kind of like an English equivalent. So it's like, okay, so now where do you think you're going with this? You know, so that repeats in there. So then it repeats three times at the beginning. And then on the second part of the song, then it elaborates, and then it ends with that phrase. So then it's like haiku. Then the next part says, whenever somebody does this to me, and everybody, you know, like asked her out for a date, whenever, whenever somebody does this to me, it just makes me laugh. <laughs> so that guy got slammed, you know. That's great. He, he got really slammed. <laughs> so but, now you had mentioned that in the traditional way of bringing up children, that they're separated into genders and they, they get their own training into how to survive and how to yeah. be an adult. Yeah. So did women have their own songs? Oh, yeah, they do. All of these songs, basically, they're all composed in the voice of a woman talking. So the, really? Yeah. Even, even if a man composes the song, it's in the voice of a woman? Yeah, yeah, because you see, uh, in English, they just call them like courting songs or love songs, but we don't say that at all in Lakota language. We actually categorize them. Some of them are what they call we oishte, some of them are called we iloa, some of them are called we oispe. It depends on the content of the lyrics. In every case, what they do is they'll take... That woman is talking, and they'll take those words. They'll take those words, and they'll put them in this magical, formulaic uh, modality, which is very aberrant. It's a very, very aberrant genre of music, compositionally. It's very distinctive. And it's diffused all throughout the prairies and the woodlands. So I could sit here, and I could do songs from this part, from Indiana, Mishkwaki or Sack and Fox melodies. It's exact same formulaic rules of composition as way out there in, in the prairies, out in Montana. So no matter when you hear these this genre of songs, mostly on wax cylinders, the ones that are preserved from the late 1800s, you can instantly identify that genre because the rules of construction are uniform across the region. Anyway, so uh, for the Lakota, what they'll do is that they'll uh, take this, uh, this woman's talking and then who's ever the recipient of those words will take those words and put them in the form of a song and send it back over to them. So that's the message. Yeah, they send from it. From me to you. Yeah. So he's sending it back when he makes a song. And then 
See, they don't have like uh, radio airwaves and stuff like that. They don't have UPS or FedEx and stuff. like The way they send their message, they use the wind. See, he used the wind with the flute. It's unobtrusive to do the flute. So somewhere way back out there, you know, that girl said that, and then he's going to send that back over to her. He still loves her. He's got that real feeling for her. So he's going to go way out somewhere. It might be like quarter mile, half a mile out. But he's got his back to the wind. That wind direction is aimed directly at her. See? She's going to hear that sound. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's in the pre-reservation days, you know, when they're camping out on the prairie. Wow. Yeah. That's lovely. It's interesting, huh? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I guess my interest was uh, women playing the flute. Do they would they compose their own songs and compose their own music? Now you know that I've got a lot of these songs. Uh, years ago, I went to school with a young man from uh, Tama, Iowa, which is where the uh, Mishkwaki settlement there. And you know they they are originally from this part of the country out here, the uh, otherwise known as the Sac and Fox. But those are two separate tribes. They became known as the Sac and Fox because when the U.S. government dealt with them. The treaty negotiations included both tribes. But they actually are ethnically and linguistically distinct. So the ones in Iowa are the Mishkwaki, and the ones down around Cushing, Oklahoma, those are the Saugi. And so the Mishkwaki are, in English, they call them fox tribe. I don't want to evade your question, but <laughs> but years ago I went to school with a young man from there, from uh, the Mishkwaki settlement in Iowa. And it's not a reservation. They have a settlement because they bought their own land there. But anyway, that's a different story. And then, uh, tragically, he died in an automobile mishap. So then, according to their ways, their custom there, the family will adopt somebody to take the place of that departed loved one. So then his folks took me for a son through that. And then on my Meskwaki mom's side, one of her close relatives was a song keeper. He had all those songs. His name was Everett Capeu. Everett Capeu. He had a mind like a steel trap. He passed away. His mother was a very intellectually gifted person who saw what was happening, and that was that the flute tradition that they had was disappearing. There were just a couple of elderly people who had that tradition. So this was probably in the 30s, 1930s or 1940s. And so then she went around and she collected those songs. Now, she didn't record them, but she, she went around, she got them, she, you know, she learned them. And so she became the repository of those songs. And I think she composed some as well. And so she became the repository of the songs. Now, the Mishkwakis, in their songs, they're not strictly from the female voice or the male voice. They're, it goes either way. So it's, there's less restrictions on the Mishkwaki uh, songs. But they're the exact same rules of composition as the Lakota, even though they're from like 1,000 miles apart geographically. Wow. So that tradition diffused out so vastly. vastly. And, uh, I can do one of her songs, should I? Yeah, yeah, you that'd be great. One? Okay, I'll do one of her songs. And this is a song about this person, and their Valentine sweetheart lives on the other side of the river. And so they can't get across that river. It's too high, too wide, too fast, too deep, you know. And there's no uh, bridge across. There's no uh, boat or ferry service and... Uh, Probably their internet went down too. So then um, they want to get this message across. And so the person says in the song, first part says, Nguina dawe kanapanaso, agamahek e kiwinewanan, 
And I don't speak that. I'm just like a parrot, you know, just saying it, like a minor bird or something. But they're saying their valentines over there. I can't reach them across the river. And the next part says, Gata benaki wampamu, kiwi hawanen. So the person says, when you think about me, when you think about me, take your mirror. They say, wampamu. Take the mirror, flash the light over. That way I know that you're still thinking about me, see? So you can hear the same rules apply there with the composition. Yes. Now, I wanted to mention, too, that uh, that language, uh, Mishkwaki language, which is like an eastern Algonquin language, basically like from a lower part of Lake Michigan, like, you know, northern Indiana up in there, then maybe not quite this far south in Indiana where they're, you know, native to. But um, that was the language that was used in the World War II in the campaign to rout Rommel. The Desert Fox, who was a Nazi tank commander. That was in North Africa. North Africa, in Tunisia, yeah. Hitler wanted to capture the Holy Land, his goal. Remember that uh, Indiana Jones movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yes. It's partly based on reality. I mean, of course, it's a lot of fantasy in there. But this was the goal. And so Hitler commissioned Rommel, his genius strategist, tank commander, to come in that two-pronged approach from the south. They were going to right. come, come around that way, see? Right. And a lot of people don't know 
that the folks who did the communications in that successful operation to route Rommel was a language from here. Oh, really? Uh, Mishkwaki language, yeah. Mishkwaki. Yeah, my adopted dad, uh, Frank Sinachi, was the last of the uh, Meskwaki code talkers when he passed away a few years ago. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So they had, I, I don't know, I think it was close to 30 Meskwakis who ran the radios on that operation. Wow. People don't know that, do they? No, no. Yeah. We know about the Navajo yeah. and then there's some other yeah. uh, kinds of Lakota code talkers. Yeah, there was uh, 30 languages used. People think it was all Navajo. But no, each campaign had a different language. And Normandy was Comanches, the invasion of Normandy. Comanches did that, yeah. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. Lakotas, they're more further in towards France and Belgium. More in, I think we had, just on Standing Rock alone, something like 173 code talkers. So there were a lot of them. No, I did not know that, that there were 30 different languages used yeah. in that program. Yeah. Because, I mean, everyone was told not to talk about it once yeah, they came it was, home. Yeah, it was classified. I know that my Meskwaki dad didn't talk about it till he was on his deathbed. And then at the last hour, they, they had people coming all over, from all over interviewing him because he kept his mouth shut all those years. And finally, at the end, he talked about it. That was the time to tell the story. Yeah. Wow. Speaking of telling stories, it's not just singing to the wind or flashing the mirror, but it's dancing. How the different hoops are used in, in the dance. That's storytelling, too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it really is. I was doing some school programs back home in South Dakota. I went over to visit this uh, gentleman. I was very pointed. I wanted to see him. He's quite elderly now, and he's in a wheelchair. He had a stroke and everything. But he was a really well-known hoop dancer in his youth, and he's famous man. His name is Leonard Crowdog. Leonard Crowdog. Have you heard of him? I have heard of you him, heard yes. of him, yeah, Leonard Crowdog. He was uh, very well-known. He was involved in the, uh, you know, the Wounded Knee activity in 1972, 73, yes. and you know, Alcatraz, all this movement. He's an, really an activist. But in his earlier days, he and he's close to, uh, what is he? He's close to 80 now, I think. Anyway, he was really a good hoop dancer in his day. So then I wanted to ask him about it, you know. So I went over and I was asking him. I asked him, I says, uh, he says, Lake Shi, I won't keep you going to copy Chunky Lila. What you have done, I says, Uncle, I says, I, I, I'm really glad to see you and I've, Really happy to talk to you, but I've got, I'm here for a purpose. I says, I've got to ask you some questions. I told him, <laughs> but he speaks Lakota, you know, so we can just converse. But I'll say it in English here. When I asked him that, I said, Where would you say this dance comes from, this hoop dance? Where is it from? And how did you get it? I said, How did you get it? And he says, uh, This dance, he says, this comes from the universe. That's the way he said, This comes from out there in the universe, he says. It doesn't come from this world. He says, this is a shadow world we're living in right here. It's a shadow world. It's a reflection of reality. And so this dance that we have and all these dances, these gifts, this music, it comes from out there in the real world. And we get these here to remind us of who we are and to reconnect us to that real world so we don't become lost in this shadow world, he said. Then he went on to say, he says, it's really good, nephew. He says, it's really good that you're doing this for the kids because they can remember. They haven't forgotten. He said, a lot of us, you know, when we get maybe middle age or we get older, then we forget about who we are and where we're from, he says. But then what you're doing now, he says, what you're doing 
You see, and also his dad, I knew his dad, uh, Henry Crow Dog, and his dad was uh, a flute player too. He says, what you're doing, he says, like what my dad did. And you know, then, of course, Leonard was a hoop dancer too. What we did, he says, this is the main thing that we can do. He says, these kids, these kids are becoming lost. We're losing them because they're being pulled away from who they are, he said. But now, with what you're doing, you can bring them back into the real world, the world that never fades, the world that's all, you know, like, it's a springtime that autumn can never overtake that world, see? I bet that sounds beautiful in Lakota to say the springtime world that autumn can never overtake. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what's the, what, how do you say that in Lakota? You say, Waitu Oihankishni, hee. That springtime that never fades out, that autumn can never overtake. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And so when you're dancing with the hoops, you have all these sort of small. Hoops. What are, what are the hoops made of? Or do you use a, a wooden reed, or do you have a different material for yeah, your Yeah, yeah. I, I actually did get that dance through um, uh, from an individual. He said that he was going to give me uh, four lessons. He was going to give me one lesson at the time and the rest later. But then, um, so he gave me that first lesson. He was in an accident. He died. And so then uh, in that first lesson, he said, uh, he says, I'm going to do my part. He says, I'm going to fulfill my part. He says, I'm going to give you these four lessons. He said, and then uh, when you do your part, he said, through this, then you're going to be able to meet many people. You're going to be able to see many places. You're going to be able to um, have many uh, wonderful experiences. And you're going to be able to receive abundant blessings, a lot of blessings. He says, you'll get all that when you do your part. But then he died, you know, after that first lesson. But see, he came to me through uh, dreams. He didn't show me how to do the dance, but he just showed me the uh, meaning behind it. And it's exactly what uh, Leonard said, exactly that. I wanted to disaffirm that. You know, that's why I was talking to him when I would visit him. He said the exact same thing that I got through those uh, dreams. But that's how I got it. Uh, then, but then when I went to his, uh, his mom asked me to be a pallbearer at his funeral. So I went up there and it's from uh, Shell Creek. Uh, it's on the... Uh, uh, three affiliated tribes, Mandan, Hidaz, and Rikara, the North Dakota, North Dakota. Is from. It's a little community like 11 miles south of uh, Newtown. It's called Shell Creek. That's where he's from. So the funeral was down there at Shell Creek. But then when I got there, then I saw his brother, uh, Jake. Jake Goodbear is his brother's name. So then uh, as soon as I saw him, you know, he gave me a big hug. And then he had his brother's hoops, and he gave them to me, gave them all to me. And I have those. I have, I take, they've been all over the world with me. I still have them. It's uh, wooden hoops, and I use them. I still use them, yeah. And so that's how I got the dance, but uh, the, the thing is that everything he said came true. He fulfilled his lesson, what he promised, the four lessons he promised. He fulfilled that through the dreams that I had, sequence of dreams. Then everything that he said has, has indeed uh, been fulfilled. Kevin Locke in conversation with Shane Lauder. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. So you have been traveling since, uh, I know you've been recording since 1982. Yeah. And you've been traveling since 1980? Yeah, since about like that, yeah. Yeah, I have. And you've been all over the world. You've... uh, Yeah, it's uh, 95 countries. Wow. 
Now, I, I'm curious, when you present and you dance the hoop dance, you play the flute, you sing the songs, how do people of other cultures respond? What this is, it's uh, what they call folk arts. There are folk arts or traditional arts. And so basically every culture in the world has some form of folk arts, folk music or folk tradition. So uh, I don't really know what the dictionary definition of folk arts is, but what happens, the process is such that in every community throughout the world, there is a process by which certain aesthetics are passed down intergenerationally. You know, like within that community, there's certain forms, I would say, like could be it could be music, could be dance, it could be like storytelling, it could be all kinds of crafts and all these things that are that are really uh, integral or essential to the identity of that community. And it reflects their sense of proportion, their sense of harmony, balance, beauty, color, all of these things, you know, unity, all these different things. So it's, it's really a, a set of aesthetics which is passed down. And then as it goes down through time intergenerationally, then that kind of maybe becomes somewhat refined or it becomes, you know, accentuated. And what the things that are accentuated in that process of being passed down are uh, universal qualities. You see, they're universal qualities. So what happens in these folk arts, and they're coming down, and they arrive down at our generation now, and when we express them, what they serve to do is they emphasize or they showcase universal human values, universal human aesthetics. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So see, those traditions that we have that come down as individuals like myself or whoever has them, they don't belong to us, you see, as individuals. So the only way we can really uh, really express them is to the most efficacious degree is the extent to which we can take our ego out of it, you see? Yes. You have to take your ego out of it because, see, what it is, see, those people back there, whatever generation you know, it is that, that brought it forward, perpetuated it. They had prayers. They had dreams. They had hopes. They had visions. They had, uh, you know, their own aspirations. But now they're not here. But see, we can fulfill those things on their behalf. And the power that they put into it, we can realize those things on their behalf. So in other words, we can release those prayers. We can release that vision. And that's the power of it. That's what uh, Leonard Crowdog was talking about. Yes. These yeah. things come from out in the universe. I'm going to assume that you've also performed for other indigenous communities. Yeah. Do they respond to that too, that universal level? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really a sharing. Just like uh, recently I was down in uh, South America. I was in Peru. And, and they have really fantastic, uh, you know, traditions, you know, like especially musical traditions down there, flute music and things like that. They respond they, uh, on that level of saying, hey, this is, this is really something fantastic that we share. But it's not just within this hemisphere. It's, it's universal. What I'm going to assume is that there are moments when you're the only American in the room. You're the only person from North America, from this continent, mm -hmm. who's present at a conference or a performance and stuff. Do people relate to you then as the American or the representative of America, or is it through, do they relate to you through this sense of universal sharing of realities, human realities? I always like to just focus on the universal part of it. For instance, yesterday I, had a, I was at a little school up there in uh, 
in South Bend. It was a Montessori school, but there's a couple hundred kids there. But that's all I try and do, you see. I don't care. My goal is totally not to convey a tribal or cultural-specific message. The only thing I really want to do is just to encourage those kids to be who they are. We're world citizens, and we have something so beautiful, so precious, so uh, essential to contribute towards an emerging global civilization. And those little kids are the ones, you see, they have that. They have that gift. And it's, you know, when you see them, you can, it's very, very encouraging because we see, uh, you know, all these problems throughout the world. But we have to have the confidence that, uh, that the one above, the one we pray to, God, or however you want to say that, has not abandoned us and has uh, put in the hearts, planted in the hearts of this generation coming up, the blessings that will be released and enable mankind to efflorescence. Yeah, that's beautiful. Now, yeah. I, you mentioned uh, that you you don't present like this is a specific tribal thing or this is a... And you also mentioned the necessity in presenting a folk art, the necessity of taking your ego out of it. Yeah. I, th- I have seen one of the kind of obstacle to this kind of sharing of universal human experience and possibility is the argument that cultural appropriation is a bad thing. If mm-hmm. and so, and I, I, I know I feel myself sort of hesitating, or and I see other people hesitating to really like jump in and play and embrace and enjoy, and participate in traditional arts expressions, music, design, or whatever. Because oh, I'm not, I'm not Lakota. I'm so I shouldn't wear the symbols. I shouldn't. You know, I shouldn't wear the jewelry. I shouldn't take on any of the styles. I shouldn't try to do the dances because I'm not Lakota. And, yeah. and I mean, I've, I've heard people say, well, you know, women who aren't Arabic or Turkish shouldn't be doing belly dance. And, oh, yeah. You know, or you shouldn't be playing that kind of music because you're not from yeah. the South yeah. Sea Islands. You shouldn't be putting Peruvian art on your wall because yeah. you're not Peruvian. And I wondered, how do you respond to that? Because it bothers me a lot because I feel yeah. that the sharing and the enjoyment and the the fellow celebration yeah. of that universal beauty is yeah. what matters. It's where, yeah. where we all come from and where we meet each other. Well, you just answered your question. Let me just reflect back what you're saying, okay? The problem is, is uh, it's, it's a false dichotomy. You see, when we look at things from the perspective or the reference point of a materialistic civilization— then that's right that all that stuff becomes, you know, cultural appropriation and like that. But that's a very materialistic uh, way of looking at it. But then when you think about it, you think about, well, those things that are spiritual, like, you know, the, like the beauty, the, the, all these things are, are universal qualities. A really good example would be like the, the, the Language Conservancy or the, the Lakota Language uh, Consortium. For instance, you, you know uh, Jan Ulrich, right? Jan, yes, I Jan, do know Jan. Jan. So here's a guy from the Czech Republic, right? He's from the Czech Republic. But then when, you, when he opens his mouth and he speaks Lakota, it's just like he could be, he could be uh, somebody that stepped out of time like a couple hundred years ago, you know? It might as well be just the fluency, how articulate, how precise, the beautiful idioms that he brings out without using one word from a European language. It's just fantastic. And that immediately lets you know that these things... These beautiful human qualities 
transcend geography, race, culture, gender, and so on and so forth, you see. So we can see it like that. But then, of course, when you look at it from a materialistic viewpoint, then that's when all this, uh, all these walls and all these barriers and all this, these things come up like that. So we have to create an environment in which, because if, if everybody just kept all that stuff for themselves, then the value becomes pointless. And it's, it's lost. It's lost. And it's lost, too. Let's say, you know, you go out into Peru there and you go to these villages where there's beautiful music. But yet the people there may or may not appreciate it. But the instant it's released out, then its value becomes enhanced. Yeah. And so you have to enable these different, you'd have to say it's just like any kind of an ecosystem, like any kind of environment, like right here, southern Indiana right here. This is a beautiful environment. And you go out today, you can hear all these birds. It's like a symphony of birds. And you can just feel like everything's about to explode into life. And it's not a monoculture, you see. It's rich, it's beautiful because of its diversity. The human experience is the same. So the, the richness that we have is based on this diversity that we have. And so all these things are, gonna, are, are coming together now, and it's, it's creating life. Yes. It's merged into something beautiful. It's going to be the springtime. Yeah, spring that springtime is... that will never fade. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Now, we try to create that in Bloomington with Lotus Festival. You've, yeah. you've performed at Lotus yes. Festival several times? Yes. Yes. And you have other connections to Bloomington. I was like, what was the first time you came to Bloomington? Oh, gosh. I came here a long time ago. They had a Baha'i Youth Conference here. Oh. I attended that. I think that was in the early 80s, I think. But I've, I've come back and forth over the years and, you know, different occasions. And how did you meet uh, Jan of the uh, Lakota Language Consortium and the Language Conservancy it's based uh, here in Bloomington? The, I think it was about 12 years ago. They did the first annual uh, Lakota Summer Institute at Sitting Bull College at Standing Rock, where I live. I Somehow I heard about it, and I was so fascinated, you know, that this was going to take place. And so I, I went there, and it just, it just blew, completely blew, blew my mind. Because, you know, prior to that time, we, you know, we were all laboring a really inadequate uh, dictionary or orthography, I should say, the orthography, which was developed... You know, it worked for the people back then in the early 1800s, but it didn't depict the full names or anything. And so this was just fantastic to see that this work had been done. And I was just, I was just amazed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by a fellow from the Czech Republic. Exactly. It just, it just, just astounded me. Yeah, that's great. And, yeah. and your connection to the Baha'i faith yeah. uh, brought you to Bloomington, too. Yeah, yeah. They've got a little Baha'i community here, and I've, I know some of them. There's one... One of the senior or one of the elder members of the Baha'i communities actually was born and raised in McLaughlin, South Dakota, which is right in the center of Standing Rock. Mm-hmm. I was telling them that I, I lived in McLaughlin for many years, and uh, you know I, I'd always do a lot of running, and, and I, I was telling them, oh, boy, I, there's one cemetery in town that I like to run over there. It's so peaceful over there. And it, there's two cemeteries in, in McLaughlin. I said, I said, which one? I said, it's the one on the south side of the tracks, you know, over there kind of on the east side of town. Oh, yeah, he says, yeah. He says, and where, where did you go? I said, well, kind of in the southeast corner of that cemetery. There's some big trees or big pine trees, and right there, it's so peaceful. And then he said, well, next time you go there, look at those names. That's my parents are right there. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and sure enough, his whole family's right there. But anyway, yeah, I, di- I didn't know him because he's quite a bit older than me, but he left before I 
<laughs> I know him, but anyway, he's from. The, it's just kind of like a little interesting anecdote. But, yeah, yeah. But he's here. He lives here in town. Now, the universality of the Baha'i faith you know, it definitely expresses exactly what you've been saying, what Leonard Crowdog was saying about exactly, the yeah. universality of human experience and yeah. where we need to come from to to connect with each other. So how did you find the Baha'i faith? I was looking for it because, you know, um, when I was a lot younger, I— um, I had so many questions that I would always always ask people. I couldn't get the answers that I wanted. And finally they said, well, the only thing you can really do is you have to go out there. They always point out, you know, like towards those hills, because if you're good at standing rock, it's kind of like a prairie wilderness. If your dog runs away, you can see him running away for about three or four days, you know. So anyway, they, they kind of point out there, you have to go on those hills out there, you have to fast and pray out there. I started doing that and then... Um, I just felt like there was things that I still needed to find in life. I needed to find the answers and answers. And so at the same time, I had met some uh, some Baha'is there. There was, a, there was a couple living right there in Fort Yates. This one particular time went out fasting. I had a real fixed goal. I wanted to achieve some answers to questions. I said, in my prayer, I wanted to find this road of life because this is a motif which is very prominent in the Lakota worldview and the way they pray. They pray for the red road. They call it the red road. Chankuluta. Chankuluta na chanku otkalana washte na wakha. Hechechche You know, this is what we want to find this. We want to, we want to find this road of life, this, this red road. And so this is my goal. I just felt like it eluded me. And then so I, I felt like it was a big failure that I hadn't found that. And then my uh, my friends were going to be leaving the area. And just after I finished this one particular, uh, like, four days, four nights out fasting, it was really hot. I felt like I just about died. And I just felt like a colossal failure. They uh, gave me a Baha'i prayer book. I just opened that prayer book up. And I, I turned to this prayer. It says, uh, O Lord, my God, praise and thanksgiving be unto thee, for thou hast guided me to the highway of the kingdom suffered me to walk in the straight and far-stretching path. Illumine my eye by beholding the splendors of thy light. Incline my ear to the melodies of the birds of holiness from the kingdom of mysteries. And attracted my heart with thy love among the righteous. It's kind of a long prayer. But anyway, as I read this prayer, then I realized that's exactly what I was praying for, this road, this straight and far-stretching path. And all the whole prayer, what it does is it elaborates on as we walk on this journey in all these beautiful worlds, these beautiful potentialities unfolding before us. As I read that, it just hit me that I had found what I was looking for. And so then subsequently now I have been able to meet Baha'is all over the world. You know, the, the Baha'i faith is like, I think it's like the first or second most geographically widespread religion in the world. Just as for your information, real briefly, and I think the largest Baha'i community is in uh, India. And most of them are from a Hindu background. I think like maybe the one of the fastest growing Baha'i communities is, uh, is Mongolia. And they're from um, mostly from a Tibetan Buddhist background. Uh, another one of the really fast growing communities is, uh, is Vanuatu. And they're from a uh, cargo cult. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that little tiny island of Vanuatu. Yeah, yeah, that's in Melanesia. Yeah. But all through the area, it's growing, they're going fast. In Peru and Bolivia, it's very, you know, it's, there's a huge communities over there. 
I was just down there. I met quite a few. But anyway, in North America, most of the Baha'is are from a Christian background, you know, for the most part. But the thing that unifies all these people is that they all recognize in the person and teachings and uh, that voice of God for this day in the person of Baha'u'llah, who for 40 years before his passing in 1892 revealed, you know, tens of thousands of writings, you know, the prayers, the precepts, the information that mankind has been longing for to achieve this day of fulfillment. Beautiful, beautiful. So, uh, yeah, great. Okay, last question. Okay, you've been traveling and teaching for 40 years. You're now an elder, and you do this tremendously athletic dance for the hoop dance. How do you stay in shape? Uh, I've got a personal trainer. It's my wife. (laughs) (laughs) That's handy. (laughs) Personal trainer. She has me on a on a certain kind of a diet. She has me do all these exercise videos, you know, they do all the, the all the different muscle groups and the core workouts. So I do all that stuff. So, yeah. Great. But it's okay. Yeah. Do you it's still okay. run? Yeah, I do a lot of running, like maybe three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten miles a day or something like that. Depends on how I feel. Great. Yeah, I do all that stuff. I just kind of push myself to the limit every day. That's wonderful. Yeah, That's wonderful. I really appreciate you coming in, Kevin. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's been great. Lechia tuama ki pampe. Wioch beata. Wakia oyate. Kola ma ki pampe. Wioch beata. Wakia oyate. Kola ma ki Kevin Locke, musician, dancer, teacher, and cultural ambassador of Lakota Native American traditions. He's been speaking with Shane Lauder. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.